0: Hey, what's going on, chams? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad.
1: Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Thank you for joining me once again. If you're new here, I'm glad that you found this little nook of mine in the podcasting world. I hope you enjoy what you hear. And you enjoy it enough that you'll subscribe to my podcast. Where can you subscribe, you may ask? Well, An Immigrant's Life is available on all the podcasting platforms, even on YouTube. And if you'd like, you can also give the podcast a five-star rating. That way, you can help the podcast to grow for free. And if you want more content like pictures of the guest or audiograms, snippet of the conversation... You can check us out on all the social media at An Immigrant's Life. Again, thank you and I really appreciate you. This episode, we are visiting the land down under Australia. I love this episode because despite the guests and I talk about a very dark topic, we still joke and laugh a lot, which is what I'm trying to do here. Make light of these dark topics so we might take back its power. And we can control our own narrative. I don't want to take more of your time. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is like a mariposa. Beautiful, exquisite, and a symbol of hope. The woman behind SEDA Collective. Everyone, please welcome Denara Amat.
2: Wow, that that was a beautiful entrance. I've been... I've been listening to your podcasts, mm. and uh, and I heard all your intros, and I was like, I wonder what he's gonna say about <laughs> me. That, that was great. I might have to record that and use that for my own intro or something.
1: Ah, thank you. I appreciate it. I it's actually one of my favorite part of doing the podcast is creating this elaborate, colorful, and beautiful introduction.
2: Yeah, I'm going to use that even every time I enter a room, I reckon. I'll just play <laughs> before I
1: walk in. And wearing your like, vest and just walking in. What's up, yeah. boys? What's up, girls?
2: I'm ready. Yeah, here I am. Party's ready to start. Yeah, I'm totally <laughs> doing that. I appreciate thank that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for having me. Hello.
1: Oh, of course. It's a pleasure. I know it's early there. I do really appreciate you waking up early.
2: No, it's all good.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, before we continue, if you want to tell how the immigrant nation could get to you, or if you want to promote anything, go ahead.
2: No worries. Um, hello everyone. My name is Danara, um, and I'm the founder of an ethical fashion brand called Seda Seda Collective. You can find me on social media Facebook, Instagram at danara.danara or Seda Collective. So that's set seda collective or SedaCollective.com. collective.com um and that has all of the all of the infos my personal infos and all about the brand there as well.
1: Mm. You guys got to check it out. I mean she has like this beautiful beautiful artwork like I don't really look at them like clothing or accessories I call them art cuz they are art.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we do call them, I do call them like wearable art because mm. they are, because they're all woven with so much stories and traditional technique. And it is, it's like you are wearing a piece of art. so.
1: Like you're wearing one now. What do you call that, what you're wearing? And if you could explain for the listeners.
2: Okay. So I am wearing one of the set of vests. Um, this is a vintage Suzani vest. Um So, We, since last year, we started working with artisans along the Silk Road. Uh, So we work with artisans in Afghanistan, use 100% upcycled textiles from Uzbekistan and upcycled Mongolian sheep rugs and we turn them into one of a kind like coats.
1: Mm. What do you mean upcycle?
2: So... Uh, upcycle means that you are using something that was a vintage material that was had a previous life. So, for example, the textile here, um, they're called Suzani's. They're from Uzbekistan and Tajikistan mainly. They were traditionally wall hangings or like a bedspread or something that um, a bride gives gives as a dowry like on their wedding day. Mm. Uh, and then so we sourced them from Uzbekistan and then turned them into coats. So when you turn something that's already some was something else, it's like called upcycling.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah. That's... And like the, the fur was uh, Mongolian rugs, you know, they use in the yurts and stuff and would turn them into coats. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I've heard the word upcycle before and I was like, I know what that means. I was too lazy to Google it. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to ask a smart person, which is you, (laughs) to explain it to me.
2: Yes, that's it. you're giving something a second life and you can turn into something cool and you keep that and you're turning into a wearable art, you know, rather than a wall hanging, you wear wearing around. Mm.
1: Is it traditional, this vest that you're wearing or...
2: So, the Afghan coats and Afghan vests are traditional to Afghanistan and something that's been existing around the 60s. Um, but to make Afghan coats with these vintage Suzanis, it's been existing around probably 20 years or so. Mm.
0: Um,
2: so, yeah, so the style of the coat is very traditional, very authentic. Um, and so is all the Suzanis. They are a traditional technique that's been around for generations.
1: Mm, that's cool. Yeah. Anyways, we'll talk more about Seda Collective. Let's focus on Denara for a bit. Okay. (laughs) I heard you say that you were born in a country that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And where is that?
2: So I am from East Turkestan. So I'm an Uyghur Uzbek from East Turkestan. So like Tibet, my country has been wrongfully occupied. Um, Yeah, that's where I'm from.
1: So how did it work? Like, of course, you guys are living there, your ancestor mm-hmm. and whatnot. The Chinese just showed up and said, hey, by the way, this is our land now.
2: Um, I think the I'm not the best politician historian, but I'll give you a rough, rough understanding yeah. of how the history worked. <laughs> um, so East Turkestan is part of Central Asia, but it seems to be a main point. Um, of resources, right? There was lots of materials of oil um, that are very valuable, and I think it was a very powerful place for another place to control. And while Russia controlled the rest of the stands, um, East Turkestan and Tibet Tibet fall in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party (CCP), as mm. we, uh, as I also abbreviated it to. Um, and then the occupation kind of started probably since the nineteen forties I believe okay, okay yeah, um but it I think it's throughout the years it's gotten it's definitely gotten way more worse and way more stricter um yeah,
1: you were born there, but did you grow up there?
2: Yes, so I grew up there until I was twelve, so I came here when I was twelve,
1: so you were told. Of course, you remember Turkestan. Paint to us what it looks like, how it feels growing up there.
2: Okay. Um, yeah, I, have, I remember I remember East Turkestan very clearly because I was when I left, I was 12. Um, life to me growing up seemed normal. It was normal. I didn't know anything different. I watched the mainstream news. I listened to what the CCP taught me. I listened to... I went to a Mandarin school for education and what the history and the the knowledge they taught me when I was growing up was that we are all different minorities living in this wonderful country called China (laughs) (laughs) and... Um, you know, there's even anthems that's, that goes like 56 different nationalities living on the CCP. And then you sing that like on a weekly basis. And these texts are written on walls, like just on no, normal street, you know, like, and I remember going to class with, at this point, I only thought I was Uyghur, by the way, because my parents decide, just never explained to me that I'm actually half Uzbek. I don't know what. <laughs> they always like, oh, they're too young. Let's explain to them later or something. Mm. Anyway, I remember like um, trying to read the my Chinese school book where they write your ethnicity on the top um, and they wrote Uzbek slash Uyghur and the characters for Uzbek uh, in, in Mandarin was very difficult characters to read and I was like, what is this? And that's the first time, I think it was like six, Uh, No, wait, maybe like seven or something. I I go home and I'm like, what is this? And that's when I first find out that I'm half Uzbek, half Oyghur. I was like, thanks, mom and dad. (laughs) Um, So my father's side, they're all Uzbeks, but they migrated to East Turkestan when the USSR was all taking over Uzbekistan,
0: Hmm.
2: I think. And then um, when all of that was going down and they came, they migrated to East Turkestan, I guess, hoping for a better life, better situation. Uh, which didn't really turn out that way. And they met, and then he met my mom. Who's they brought on Uyghur. the wrong horse. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, turn back. It's too late. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm half Uzbek, half Uyghur, growing up in East Turkestan, occupied East Turkestan under CCP education. And yeah, I remember going to school with Mongolians, with Kazakhs, with Tibetans. And I just was always like, Something didn't make sense to me that we were these different minorities, and there were other little minorities as well. Um, but we were all under this one country, and that's I thought every single country around the world that's how it worked. I thought every country had these minorities, but you were belong to a bigger dog or something. But a lot of things didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me. The Tibetans had their own history and their own culture, their way, their names are written differently, their religious practice, you know, Uyghur cultures were very different, but we were all under the CCP, you know. But I didn't know any different. So I went to school like that, you know, lived 12 years of my life learning a very different history. Studying Mandarin because it was the dominant language, go home, speak Uyghur, do our own Uyghur traditions and ethnic practices, and just think that we were all 56 different happy minorities under this one country.
1: Mm. Wait, did you have like quote unquote Chinese classmates or friends?
2: Yes. So there were definitely, there were majority Han classmates. and then there will be like Tibetans and Uyghurs like me. But we also had at the time, uh, this will be what, early 2000s, you can also go to an Uyghur school to learn Uyghur only, mm. to study everything in Uyghur only. But those kind of schools def- don't exist anymore. And at the time, you can see that they were trying to push them out because um, if you did go to an Uyghur school to get an only Uyghur education, you're Opportunities of getting a job or something is a lot harder. Mm. that's why my parents sent me to a Mandarin school to learn Mandarin and English, actually. And I never paid attention in the English class. <laughs> I was like, what am I gonna do with this?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so do you still speak Mandarin?
2: Yes, I do. I speak Uyghur, I speak Uzbek and Mandarin. What?
1: That's one thing I love about Central Asia is like you guys speak like four languages. Or five or more.
2: Yeah, I wish I could. I wish I know Russian and all that, but we'll get there. Get there one day.
1: (laughs) Get that one day. Well, maybe they'll take over Turkestan.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe I. Yeah.
1: (laughs) How was your socioeconomic there? How was your level?
2: Um, I would say maybe like middle class, a bit like maybe even like higher middle class. But, like, not, not yeah, we're not rocking up in limos or anything every day, but we were doing fine. We had a mm-hmm. house. My parents had a car, which I think that was a very big thing, to be able to have a car over there. Um, and then I guess it was even, like, a bit prestige to be able to send your kids to the Mandarin schools that teach you English as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my parents both had a pretty decent job. And what because did they, do? they were all both... Mandarin speakers uh one worked for the railway and the other one was like building design what's that not like architecture but like floor plans and all that kind of architecture but not the architect (laughs) the The architect that didn't make it as an architect (laughs) (laughs) so they work with the architect
1: like the assistant of the architect
2: yeah, I think they just do building designs and floor plans and stuff like that.
1: Okay, were yeah. were there prejudices from the Hans towards the Uyghur and the other minorities?
2: Um, as in, like between the Uyghurs and the Hans. Yeah, but like growing
1: parents. up, at least for you, yeah. growing up.
2: Um, there was. I did. I. Uh, it was like definitely minor things that i realized as time went on Mm. i think there was like definitely when you're an Uyghur and when you're a tibetan you were treated a little bit differently right like um because i guess tibetans have their traditional food and we have a traditional food and if we ate something differently i guess the hans will be like oh like oh you eat lamb and do this and there was definitely that and then the traditional costume the traditional outfits that we wore and like our own cultural practices they will be like oh that's so this and that so there was very minor things but like i didn't really notice that it was like a big thing Mm. um and definitely the Uyghurs and tibetans we had like a bit of a darker skin and then they call you with a slang word as well. Um, but usually, like, if you don't speak any Mandarin, that's when they really, like, look down upon you, right? Because okay. you don't know the common language that's going around. Mm. Um, but we can speak Mandarin, so we were able to, like, say shit back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if anyone tries to bully me. But I'm, like, the tallest kid ever, so I was pretty all right. Like, I pretty much, like, never really had anything crazy happened to me I don't know what happened to me why am I so tall but um what's your height I'm like uh 179 I uh, would in in your terms what is that like 5'9
1: you are pretty tall yeah
2: yeah that doesn't really exist with Uyghur girls or Central Asian girls I feel like
0: Mm -hmm.
2: so growing up my aunties were always like oh my god how are we gonna find your husband (laughs) don't worry i'll go find a white boy
1: (laughs) i love like you're so young how are we gonna find the husband instead of like how we gonna educate you
2: yeah i was like 12 and i'm like how are we gonna find your husband you're so tall and i was starting to run out of shoe sizes to buy over there and um and then there's a common that there's a thing. It's like being a tall girl is actually an embarrassment over there. It's considered not pretty. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what's okay? What's the level that you're like? Okay, you're you're okay. You're beautiful. You're hot. Or then the level that like okay, you're a giant.
2: Yeah, like I'm considered giant over there. So the, you know, like Central Asian girls are usually quite petite, small, and like of course paler skin considered mm-hmm. more be- beauty. And I was always a darker one. And my mom's like, it's because I didn't drink enough milk when you were in my belly. And I was like, I don't know if that's how it works. But okay.
1: Mom, that's why you didn't graduate in architecture, because of these things.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I think like five six is that like 160 height? I mm-hmm. think that's, that's considered prim- primo. Oh, okay. so Anything you're two inches of,
1: a little bit weird.
2: Yeah, yeah. When you're two was like, what happened to you? And apparently the only job I can get is fixing uh, road lamps. <laughs> you know, like growing up, that's all I heard. It's like, oh, my God, all you can do is play basketball or fix lamps. It was like, anyway, I'm actually glad that I moved here and I'm like normal. Mm. Because over there, I would have I copped you know, these every day all my life for being too tall. You're probably in an
1: internment camp somewhere, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, God. I'm sorry
1: for laughing. I I just like laugh at this, (laughs) the darkest thing. And then growing up there, who decided to move to Australia? Why Australia and how?
2: Yeah, so... Uh, moving here was never on the books, never was planned. We were, going back to the uh, socioeconomic thing, we were actually like yeah, being middle class, having the right jobs. My parents they were able to take us travelling. Mm. That was quite a rare thing to be able to travel outside there, especially because it's a bit difficult being an Uyghur person. Even at the time, um, we went traveling to Malaysia, Thailand, and Singapore. And my mum loved Singapore because she loved how the school system worked over there and how it was so clean. Mm. So she thought it was a good transition to to be able to go to a place that spoke Mandarin but also used English. So like, so we can like find our way easier. Mm. And I don't really recall it now, but I think it was like the school system was like primary school, only go to school half a day or something like that, and then high school, they were very flexible and it was just not as intense and how it was in East Turkestan. Like under the CCP education, like we would get to school at 8 a.m. and not finish by 9 p.m. sometimes. <laughs> and that's like primary school, You're an hour lunch break, and if you stayed back, like, you know, your school finished at seven and if you stayed back two hours to do extra work, this and that, like you get better scores, you know, like so many people were just trying to be teachers pet from primary school level and that's that was crazy. I remember like that was for me and I was every day like kind of stressed out, just, oh, my God, I only got an A minus or something. <laughs> got to get 100%. And then I'd go home and I would start, like, sleepwalking because I thought I was missing school. Like, that's how much stress we were under. As a, what, as an 11-year-old, 10-year-old, my brother who was in high school would stay up till 2, 3 a.m. trying to catch up to work for the next day. So my mum would stay up with him to, like, help him out. So mum was just like, let's go somewhere else to that would that have a different education system. And that's the one side of Singapore that she really liked. And we were trying to move there. Um, again, the processes of moving is not that easy. Mm. <clears throat> and then my dad's side has a, he has a younger sister that's been living in Australia for like 20 years or something. I've never met this auntie or mine came over Around that similar time, when we were thinking about going to this and that, and she said, Come visit. And she, she we ho- hosted her in our house because we had a coffee machine and then a western toilet because that was like such a rare thing. Because over there, you know, you squat toilets mm-hmm. anyway. What fun! Although I think the squatting is better than the sitting situation, but you know, it's another yes. conversation. Yeah. yeah, look it up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um. And she was like, you guys hosted me in your house, come over to Australia to see my family and see how I live, this and that. And it was an invitation for my dad only, but he was like, I won't go without, like, I'll go with my wife and kids. Mum never was interested. I think she was just wanting to try to get to Singapore. Um, So we packed up everything over there, came here on a holiday, and we didn't have, we didn't speak any English, have any international bank accounts, or anything like this. Typical immigrant style. Brought over a bunch of cash in your suitcase, you know, in different pockets of the suitcase. Arrived to Australia, didn't even know what G'day was. <laughs> Just knew hello. Why is everyone calling me? Hello, mate. Arrived to her house. And the minute we got to her house, we never travelled. We never left the house, and we my dad and mum kind of became her servant. We were cleaning up her house. Um, We were never allowed to socialise with other Uyghurs or ethnic people. And then her mother-in-law was kind of like very just, very aware of our movements. And then she was like, oh, it's not safe for you to walk around with that much cash. I'll put it in my bank account so we can use for our travels. Yeah, so once the money was in her account, just completely changed and she tried to kick us out so basically the whole point was to take the money from us to kick us back home
1: what a fucking psychopath
2: yes and later on we found out that they kind of did similar things to her husband's side of the family so I think they were out of people to fuck with on that side and we were the first victims on her side (laughs) (laughs) um
1: <laughs> dad what's up man you moved to Turkestan bad place you moved to Australia <laughs> yeah. you lost all your money come on dad come on.
2: yeah and your, your your freaking sister did this to you it was insane so they're blood relatives yes
1: like actual sister
2: yeah just, they're siblings a so, uh, uh, brother and sister out of eight nine eight nine kids and apparently this was his favorite sister um and his very younger sister. And, and yeah, he, they, they did that to us. I was like 12. I had no idea what was happening. My brother was 14, uh, 16, a bit older than me, but just like, um, it was crazy what they did to us. And then they tried to kick ourselves literally on the street that day with nowhere to go, just after taking the money. It was like, find your own back to the plane and go back. I was like, what the hell? It was insane. But luckily my mom did, The one Uyghur event we went to, uh, she took the number of a few person that were, like, the Uyghur um, community manager people. Mm. So we called them up and then asked to stay at their house and explain our story to them. And they were, like, and they they told us the history about these people. Uh. Yeah, and that's how we ended up here. Mum wanted to go back after that, and she was, like, let's just go back, try to find our way back again, and then we'll go back figure out how to get to Singapore or something, but I didn't. I kind of wanted to stay here because I was like um, becoming obsessed with cheesecake. No, <laughs> that was that, I was like, ooh, Auss- Auss- Aussie food are cool. I-, I told all my friends that I went to Australia, you know, I was like, I like it here, I want to stay. But mum was like, let's all go back. But this guy that we connected with said, let's try to help, your- help you to find a way to stay because it is – Quite a threat that when you have left East Turkestan, know the history to go back there mm. again under the CCP, you know. Um, so this guy helped us out, helped us find a place to rent, and then we we end up staying. But we moved from that city, and now we came to Melbourne because, um, yeah, so that's how we end up here.
1: <laughs> My God, I, feel like I
2: talked for ages there. Yeah.
1: No, no, that's perfect. You're here to talk.
2: Okay, great.
1: <laughs> I just can't believe this woman. I mean, there are evil people out there. There are. Yeah. But to do it to your own blood is—that's psychopathic for sure.
2: Yeah, that was um, that was pretty hectic, and I think that's why my dad never really mentally recovered from that. I think it's a lot harder on an ethnic male's mind as well, especially at his age. Mm. You know, they came, no matter what, like he was at a decent job, had a bit of a status and this and that, and then Mm. to come here and go through all of that. Like he never recovered. Like, again, kind of rechecking yourself, like mentally, like mental health-wise, not that big of a thing amongst Uyghur men, at least, right? So, Mm -hmm. ethnic men. So, he never fully recovered from that. Um. My mum, like, definitely once we, we were just, like, let's, we moved to Melbourne and we just did it. We started again. She went to English school. She started off working, cleaning, like, like in the back of a kitchen hand or something, and now, she, like, she just didn't stop, send both of us to school, learn how to drive. We might have smashed into a few poles here and there, but she freaking take us to school. <laughs> Make sure we come back with food. Yeah, and then study English, get a job. Now she works in an office. Like, she was just, what she beast. just freaking did it. Yeah.
1: Shout out to mom, man.
2: <clears throat> Shout out to mom.
1: That is amazing.
2: <laughs> I'm yeah.
1: a I'm, a, I'm, I'm biased. I'm, I'm pro-female with these things.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. I was raised by women. That's why I'm like... You know, yeah. if if a guy does it, like, yeah, good job, buddy. You're supposed to do that. <laughs> if, but when the mom does it, like, yo, what's up? You know, like, after what happened to you, she's like, hey, get on my back. We're going to promised land.
2: Yeah. Yeah, she really just freaking did it. And I know, like, it seems like so much hurdles. And even sometimes now she's like, oh, my God, look at all the things that we've gone through. I'm like. What do you mean? Like, yeah, it's been shit and hard a lot of times. And, but look at where we are. And like, we're both doing fine. Both kids are doing fine. And, you know, I could have been fixing, you know, road lamps back at home. But here I am selling coats and earrings. Like, life is good. (laughs)
1: Life is good. You're not in an internment camp. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's all pretty, that's all pretty heavy stuff, that one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, we can. Um but yeah, so so that's how we end up in Australia and I didn't even know about my own country before I come to Australia. So mm. amongst all that hectic family drama these aunties made me made us go through. This auntie made us go through that's when we learned about the truth of the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and all the ethnic minorities and where East Turkestan is. And that was crazy because it was like you are relearning everything. You know, you just arrived into this country in Australia. You think you're all right, have a time to rest. This auntie fucks with you. <laughs> and then you learn the truth about your country. And then you're like 12. And then my parents who are like in their 40s, you know, I guess, that was a lot for them to relearn, like mm-hmm. 40 years of their lives, and now they understand everything that happened to their parents and their parents. So it was like so much to to digest, and it was crazy. Mm-hmm. I think it took me, took me probably a good f- seven, eight years to fully Understand all that. I, I think I probably really came to m- myself around 2018. Really, you know, like when I was 20 or 21, could fully understand that. Go through like the teenagehood period. Go to school. Oh God. In a, yeah, <laughs> full like full of like Caucasian kids, and you're trying to be one of the Caucasian kids to learn English, and then you're trying to learn all this. It was a lot. Um, so. At the time, you can still go back to East Turkestan around like 2006 to like 2010 era, I believe, or, or 2006 to till 2014. You can still go back. And we only managed to go back one time. Um, and it was like a very short trip. Um, and I think we were kind of under the understanding that we're just going to have to go back if it's possible, see our family and then that's it. But then progressively things got worse, you know, no one from there is allowed to leave, no one from the outside was ever allowed to go back in, not even tourists, no one, even I think Western people are having a hard time to even go there as a traveller. And then now you notice that and then the re-education camps really concentration camps, these these places have really come to to the media, surface of the media, like probably around 2020.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And these are some things that amongst all the Uyghurs and ethnic people we kind of n- heard of but was just hoping it wasn't true, you know. And then you see the news and you see the data, you see maps and proofs and it's like... um yeah, it's 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 weird. It's very. Uh, I think my mum is still in denial, you know. Mm. And my mum has this hope that she could go back to yeah. like see her family and aunt and her siblings and like. And I I, I used to be this like twenty year old or like eighteen year old to try to like burn down that hope, try to bring her back to reality, and now I'm just like, you know what, let's let her sit in this sweet spot of she repeats to me the same story like wow. about our aunties or cousins or stuff like five, seven, ten times. The first few times, you know, I never had the patience for it and I'm like, I've heard this story already. I've heard the story about my uncle's garden or this and that, but now I'm like, that's the only memory she has. And, of course, she's sitting with her and she's thinking about it again and again and I just sit there and I listen and she's at this kind of like she sees the news, she sees articles but hoping that something magical will happen and will open Mm -hmm. it all up and she can go be with her family, you know. And that's pretty tough. That's a pretty hard reality for a lot of uh, Uyghurs and ethnics that are going through a very similar situation like this. And I know it's even harder around like Eid or even Christmas or Easter. You know, everyone, like my colleagues or when I used to work in in a job, like my colleagues would be like, oh, I'm taking the Easter off or Christmas off to go see my family. My parents, like, what are you going to do? Where are your family? And I'm just like, well, they're locked up in the camp. <laughs> I can't ever see them. And then, you know, the first few times I'll be like, well, this is too heavy to share with them." Mm. And I'm like, "This is my reality," and you know, it's very heavy. And and they're like, "Not even a call." Like, no, I can't even call them. Like, there's no way to contact them. Um, yeah, so it's it's a it's a very heavy situation and I think some days even I like I definitely miss them more than the others I notice I repeat the same story to my partner a bit too like oh hmm. that story about my auntie or and I can see he just sits there and <laughs> listens as well because he knows that's like the only memories I have of um, all my family over there
1: when was the last time you heard anything from them
2: uh two thousand and like 2014, 2015, maybe? Or 2016, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Um, you don't know where they're
1: at, if they're safe, if they're even anywhere?
2: No, I I think they are still in, I think they are getting on with their, I think getting on with their lives because they all speak Mandarin. Like they, Mm. they are kind of, definitely probably experiencing a lot of like hate towards them and difficult hardship and probably getting re-educated from their jobs but I think they're living amongst uh, the Hans, yeah because that's they speak good. Mandarin and they all had like alright jobs that required them you know mm. yeah that's I good. think the one yeah
1: that's good to hear you're yeah, speaking yeah. of uh, re-educational school I was watching a YouTube channel because I was gonna have you and I wanted to learn something about it, and they have this video of—I don't know how to pronounce it properly. I'm gonna destroy it, but Uyghur.
0: hmm Yeah. And they're
1: like, "I love it here. It's so beautiful place. Like, yeah. yo. Yeah. Like, it's so it's sad.
2: Crazy. Yeah. And I, I and I've seen I, I like I've recently I did kind of stop watching those things because I was like. You know, I need to take a break for myself. Mm. And that's such a privilege to be able to do that. Um, but I was just, you know, kind of going way too deep and sitting there for hours looking at photos and videos and, you, and stuff. Yeah.
1: You got to spin.
2: You're going to spin for sure. And that's not a healthy state for anyone. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I've seen, yeah, some comments are like, look at them talking on the camera. Like they're obviously loving it. It's like, honestly, thinking about the way when I was growing up there. Like our teachers at school would physically hit us with a ruler or anything because, you know, that's how you got to be the best student. And if you make a mistake, this and that. And then if you, if in front of that teacher, and then with like, let's say my parents or something, and then I would never be able to have the audacity to speak anything bad about the teacher. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Like, because that's how they trained you over there is to never speak anything ill about these people that are above you or something Hmm. so like these people will be under so much stress so much fear and no matter how many cameras or you know western journalists that went up to them to say hey speak the truth they do not have any audacity or any strength to be able to do that because Hmm. the consequences they will face like that is just next level fucked up myth. That's the best way I can describe it. That <laughs> is just, yeah.
1: It's it's crazy. It's just. Yeah. Do you still have that though? That you're afraid of talking ill about your superior, I guess?
2: Um, probably like only towards my mom. Wow. <laughs> like if I keep fire to confront her. I have no, 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 no uh, ability there. Um, but everywhere else, I'm, I think I'm more kind of standing to my ground but the first few years like first getting a job and stuff I was like so scared like you know to, to speak up to my manager or mm. even at school like having to speak up to a teacher about something I was very like straight up sitting straight scared of everything but those white white friends of mine changed me <laughs> and taught me their way <laughs> you got whitewashed <laughs> yeah they taught me what to do, how to be a rebel. <laughs> how can you speak to them like that? They're going to hit you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like that. Like I remember walking to my first primary school, first day, because I was too young to go to a language centre. When you come here, you go to a language centre. But the language centres are like, they accept 15-year-olds onwards. When I was 12. so They said, just send her to a local primary school and she'll be fine. And then I walk into the primary school and, and I was trying so hard to learn the sentence. Like this is my first day in Australia, like Australian school. I did not remember that. And and I said my one time school, Australia. (laughs) 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 And then the kids kept rambling about something and I have no idea what they were saying. I'm just like one time school today, one time. And then I think some of the kids thought that was my first time ever stepping into a school or something. Mm. And I am pretty sure some of the kids thought I was like like I couldn't actually speak because I was really quiet a lot of the time but
1: well, like oh, maybe yeah. she
2: actually can't speak yet like not just speak English as and can't speak in general
1: yeah mute
2: yeah and then um, and then I just kept saying my one- time school and yeah, I remember walking to class and the teacher was trying to teach the class and then one kid's throwing something at another. One girl's applying her lip gloss, like, through the computer screen. Um, top and I of makeup. Another one was kissing another boy. And then the guy had his shoes on the table. I was like, what the hell is this? It's like, these guys are, like, crazy rebel, Like, you know, you could get hit so many times if you did that. <laughs> yeah, it was very That's different. That's crazy,
1: man. And how did you adjust through that phase of like learning english and trying to make new friends
2: um there was like a few kids that really helped me out like one teacher got me like a dictionary and i would walk around with the dictionary to like translate words Hmm. and whenever the uh, majority of kids took like english class i would get taken to a separate room with an in ESL teacher, like an English as a second language teacher to do like a private tutoring. Um, and that helped. And then I think what pushed me is just being in that area, being in that environment, just constantly being surrounded by people that were fluent talking, talking, listening to them, and then having one or two kids that were bullying me, um, because they knew I didn't really understand some of the words and they would chuck in a few you know, complicated words and then try to, like, mess with me. Um, and then I go home and I watch, like, Sesame Street and, like, Australian cartoons. Mm. And then it's just, I think, three, four months in, like, I've picked it up really quickly. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see the difference between my m- me and my brother, who's four years older than me, who went to a language school. Um, he... He doesn't have as much of an Australian accent as me. Hmm. Because he was around other like ESL kids. Right? And and then whereas I was around just Aussie kids.
1: Yeah. So i yeah, picked right. up
2: that route. Yeah. And could be the age gap as well and stuff, but um but yeah, it just pushed me to just pick it up like that.
1: Yeah, I like that. I never thought of that the way that you were thrown in the deep waters and you just have to swim while your brother yeah. is you know, hanging out with this one school Australia day today, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of them doing it. You know,
2: yeah, yeah. Maybe like no one picked up their mistakes or something. And then I was with kids that were really telling me like Aussie slangs, and then I was never heard them before, and I learned from them and stuff. So, yeah, I think that really um, that really pushed me. But I, I think I also have a thing for languages. I like learning languages. So, mm,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. Did you ever get or at least even now people calling you whitewash?
2: No. Mm. No. Yeah. Well, I hang around with a lot of diverse people. Like from like I don't really just have like Uyghur friends. And where I live, I don't actually have that many because we I I don't live where most Uyghur ethnic people live now. Mm. Like I've got friends from like Afghan friends, all the way to South American friends, to white friends that grew up here. So I don't think maybe, maybe I'll have to check myself when I go back to an Uyghur community and let's see what they say.
1: <laughs> well, they will have always something to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like me, I don't really hang out with Filipinos, to be honest. Yeah. And obviously, if they see me, they're like, oh, look at this. He's acting like he's Canadian or he's white boy. You know, I'm like, yeah. You know? But that's the, for me, at least for me, that's the best way. Because if you yeah. put yourself in the situation where everyone's eager or Filipinos, that's what's going to be your mentality. You will never grow.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, you need to meet yeah. these people from Afghanistan, from South America, you know, Central yeah. Asia.
2: Yeah. I I really do agree with that. And that was... Uh, like, after we moved to Melbourne, my mum made sure we moved to another, like, suburb that was, like, with other kids, right, like, all different backgrounds. Hmm. And, like, part of me now, I, I I was like, oh, I don't really have that many good friends or I didn't really grow up going to those celebrations or events and stuff. But um, I noticed that my friends that stick to their own ethnic groups only, they kind of, like... They kind of like gone too far, like mm. they they only stick to that. That they they don't taking any of the Australian culture at all,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? And then I, I that seems a little bit too weird for me. Like they are so only in their own ethnic group that they have no idea about any other food or music or culture or anything, right? And mm. I was just like, well. That's was the beauty of being in Australia is that I could walk two days down, meet a Japanese guy from a Japanese restaurant, and then three doors down meet a cool Somalian guy that owns a Somalian restaurant, and then I'll eat all the food, chat to them. Like that was the be- that's the beauty of being in somewhere like here. Mm-hmm. But to just stick to your clique, like it's great that you pass on, learn some traditions and culture, but then you really just isolated yourself from everything else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Let's talk about your Seda Collective. Tell us the yeah. story. How you started? How did begin?
2: Yeah. So um, I I feel like I always had a bit of entrepreneurial ship in me. I couldn't even say that word just now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably need to practice that one. Um, I would always try to like sell something. Like every time when we move house, my mom would be like, "Let me just." get rid of everything. I'll be like, no, 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 let me do a garage sale. And then I'm like 14 and bartering with other people being like, you can have that for 200. No, it's, I can, best I can give you is one night <laughs> um, And then when I got to have Facebook, um, you know, after MySpace and stuff, I started selling things on Facebook. Like I would go to op shop, find some vintage clothing or thrift some um, like secondhand clothes and then try to resell it at a higher price on Facebook and stuff. Hmm. And But at the time, I didn't know how to do like postage or anything like that. So I would meet up with people to give them their purchase in person at like 16, 17. And my mom would be like, (laughs) what are you doing? Like meeting up with random people online. (laughs) So she stopped me from doing that because she was like, that is a bit creepy. I was like, fair enough. She was like, focus on school. So I finished school, went straight into uni to do a linguistics course because I love languages, mm. um, and I wanted to become an interpreter or translator. But it was later on I found out I could have gone down that path a bit differently to a different uni that actually does just like a diploma like a like a certificate, right? Mm. Rather than going to to this other uni I went to and do a whole degree. And my degree ended up being more about literature and philosophy okay. which wasn't what I was really into and I just got so lost but I was still holding on to this ethnic pride that I was one of the first oigo girls that went to this Melbourne uni and I went to a better uni than my brother and I was like just trying to like you know push <laughs> show <through>. off <laughs> yeah push through I was hating it I was so confused and lost and then one teacher was like why don't you take a year off and travel I was like, what do you mean, travel? Like, I need to finish uni, get a nine-to-five job, get in an office and, like, be a serious person, you know?
0: Mm.
2: And then he's like, go, yeah, go travel. And everyone took gap years around I me. Mean, everyone did these travels after high school. But that doesn't really exist in, like, an ethnic culture, like, in my household. Like, especially um, that doesn't exist for a girl. It seemed like that was quite... Like, those kind of hopes were very possible for my brother.
0: Mm.
2: But, like, for a girl, you know, her safety, her this and that. Like, I think now definitely mom has changed that mentality. But growing up, she was very, like, protective of me. I know it was to, like, protect me, but I think it was secluded me a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. Um, And anyway, I decided, you know what, let's just do it. So I guess that was the point that I was whitewashed. (laughs) So, you know, my peak whitewash moment where I went, that's fine. Let's take a gap year. Worked at two jobs, two little cafe jobs and retail jobs, saved up money, and then I decided to go travel. And uh, at the time, I was trying to go to Spain and to Europe because, you know, it's more fancy. A lot of ethnic people, like, so much cooler if you made your way to Europe, right? Mm Uh, and looked at the prices in Europe. I was like, I can't really afford to go there. And I met lots of South American friends, and they said, why don't you go to South America, learn Spanish, and then work your way around South America, travel to other countries, and go from there. And I was like, okay. So I just booked a one-way ticket to Colombia, got on the plane, and then I just went there.
1: (laughs) Why Colombia? Because you have a lot of friends?
2: Yeah, so, so the friends I met, they were all Colombians and then they kept sending me links to like courses at local like unis that I could do for Spanish courses and I thought that was quite good that I could stay at their houses and then use that as like a starting point, like to build up the little confidence to work my way around South America. Um, so I arrived to my friend's house and then, you know, the first week they helped me like enrolled for for the Spanish course, find myself a place to rent. Um and then that was my base in Bogotá and took the Spanish course there. And then I traveled traveled around Colombia and then I went to Ecuador. My goal was to go to other places and get to Peru for my birthday to hold a baby llama. But <laughs> it's very specific. But look at that! You Primer are a white baby llamas. <laughs> <laughs> But they're so cute. <laughs> you know, like um,
1: baby llama.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know you tried to find yourself, and now you're finding a your llama.
2: Yeah, I want to find the llama. Look it up, they're adorable. You will, you will love them too. We um, have a farm close by that they have llamas. <laughs> in. I don't need to go to Peru. This one's different. They speak Spanish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this one's uh, bilingual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, so yeah, as I was traveling in Colombia, by the way, leading up to this point, I really never told anyone, even in Australia, that I am Uyghur. I only ever said I'm Uzbek. I just talked about my Uzbek side, even though I've never been to Uzbekistan, still till now, and it was just getting a bit, I didn't have the confidence and I guess I was still finding myself and I was in this fear that if I said anything about that my Uyghur side, that something will happen to my family over there.
0: Mm.
2: So I would only ever, and I never wanted to get into a p- political discussion and this and that. I just was like, I'm Uzbek and people never really cared at that point. or n- Not many people know, know knew about this because mm. so I'm from Uzbekistan, this and that. So, Traveled around Col- Colombia, went to different cities, and then I met some artisans that make these jewelry. And I just wanted to to buy some stuff for myself. And oh, when I got to Colombia, I felt like I felt like I was home. I felt like I was in the place that I was born. It's crazy the the setup, the streets, the traffic, the pollution. <laughs> it smelled like motherland, you know. In the corner, little food vendors, people trying to haggle me. I was like, I know this is annoying to most people, but I was like, I am home. And the fact that like my friends, you know, they welcomed me in their house. They set up a whole room for me and their cousins and their cousin who I've never met would cook up a whole slaughter, whole, whole, whole lamb, barbecue it to, to welcome me. That's some like typical ethnic thing, you know, that's so Uyghur as well. And then you drink and you eat and then you dance And I was, like, so crazy that I'm all the way on the other side of the world and I felt like I was home.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And maybe for a long time I was missing that because, you know, when you are a migrant, you are in your, like, country, like in Australia, but some part of you still want that, you know, flavour, that bit of hustle and bustle. Mm -hmm. And I never got to have that. And then in Colombia I did and I was like, this is crazy. And I felt like I was, like, I definitely feel like Colombia is like my third home away from home. So as I was traveling, I really found myself there. I'm really glad I did take the step to go travel to South America as a as an female and then as an Uyghur girl, right? And it really de- debunked all of these, like, myths I had about Colombia, the things that you see on, like, Netflix and what people think about. None of that was like that. And I really broke all of these stereotypes and had a beautiful experience in Colombia and I met the artisans and I just wanted to buy some jewellery for myself. Um, So I bought some beaded bracelets, some beaded earrings and I started wearing them around. And not that they were very traditional Uyghur, but a lot of these patterns and stuff reminded me of my own ethnic culture and styles. Um, And I found out from the artisan it takes about eight hours to bead one pair of earrings because they do it one bead at a time. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And they usually bead in their little villages on the side and then one of the main person, either her, the youngest daughter or like the husband or the son will go to the tourist street of Bogota to try to sell all the stuff. And sometimes they might not sell much at all Mm -hmm. because there will be a lot of other vendors and tourists will be bargaining with them and they don't Mm -hmm. really make that much money. And I was like, that is crazy because I was like, this thing is beautiful. And I just had such a beautiful experience with these Indigenous communities. And they asked me about my history and my background and I explained to them. That was like also the first time I felt comfortable telling people about the entire history. And they listened to everything and they welcomed me and they welcomed me like I was one of their family. And they told me about their history and the colonisation and modernization happened to their communities and they just te- taught me so much wisdom and gave me like this voice to be able to share. So I decided and then I was like, let me try to help out these communities in a way. Let me see what I can do. And I bought some more jewellery, wore them around Colombia, continued to travel around. And I had Colombians ask me where did I get these jewellery from. And I was like telling them they're from this community in this part of Colombia and they were like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm so caught up with like buying Chanel and Zara and modern fashion. I forgot about my own culture. Mm. And that hit me because that was the same thing that happened to me. Like, yes, my, my culture has, is being, you know, being forced fade away because of colonization, but also through modernization, a lot of cultures are disappearing. And even me as a teenager for so for a while there, I wanted to be a white girl so bad, you know, I wanted nothing to do with my culture. So I just wanted to get that connection back to people because that's kind of the thing epiphany that I had with the artisans, right? So I went back to the artisans. I said, let's make some jewellery and I'm going to take it back to Australia, sell it on Facebook, sell it to my friends and maybe do some markets and see what happens. And I did that. And I had this idea of starting Seda in the back of my mind. Seda means silk in Spanish to represent the Silk Road and In Persian, it means voice to represent the voice that the artisans gave me and that these artworks are the voices of the artisans. Mm. Um, So I came back, started selling a bit of jewellery here and there as a side hustle at markets, and that was jewellery that I bought from two artisans and then I expanded to nine artisans and then I ordered more and ordered more went to 12 artisans. And then in 2020, we did a huge collaboration with the Australian uh, fashion designer that made our jewellery go to all of her 55 different stores in Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Um, so I was able to take on over 30 communities in Colombia during peak pandemic where they had no income. Wow. So all these artisans were able to work from home um, and that was when I went full-time with SEDA. After that, we expanded to the Silk Road to do the coats, um, and we plan on keep going. Now we work with over 50 different communities, and my goal is really to take everyone back to the roots through wearable art from communities in South America all the way to the Silk Road.
0: Mm.
1: I like what you said there, that when you were travelling in Colombia, and yeah. you're meeting these Colombians, and they're like, "Oh, where did you get your accessories from?" And you're like, "You're from Colombia," and they're like, "Oh my god, I forgot, yeah. you know, my own culture." And that happened to me personally, and I know it happens to me in my, my culture that like we forget that we make this mm-hmm. beautiful art. That mm-hmm. you know, Fendi is awesome, Chanel is awesome, but why buy those if we can buy this beautiful artwork that you yes. know, who you know the artist, and you know it's handmade.
2: That's very true it is it is I think that's the modernization of things that you know people keep telling us these things are not cool anymore. it's not trendy anymore, and then we want we don't appreciate these like traditional techniques anymore that takes time. We want things faster, we want them quick, and then you know one week you wear something, and the next week has to be a completely different outfit because outfit repeating or wearing the same thing is not cool, so yeah, yeah.
1: You're, you're you're definitely correct in that has anyone ever approached you and said hey that's cultural appropriation what you're doing
2: yeah that's um a great point I I find that I have had uh, never never people say that to me um, in fact like most Colombians I met they're like this is amazing people need to spread the art of this more mm-hmm. Um but I do get a lot of like other ethnic community uh, people or, or also Caucasians go, when I tell them, oh, these artworks are, or these earrings are made by artisans in Colombia, then they go, but where are you from?
0: Mm. You
2: know, they're always like, but where are you from? And I, for a long time that I thought I had to explain to people, I thought I had to justify myself. I remember doing one event. I was next to a, a Caucasian lady, a white lady, who was selling kaftans from Bali. And then people went up to her was like, oh, my God, this is amazing, this is amazing. No one ever asked her about where is she from and why is she working with Balinese artisans. But the fact that I'm working with Colombian artisans and that I'm a different background, like, they were asking me, and that's when I realised, like, they're just trying to fit me into a category, right? Mm. And what I'm doing is not weird. Yes, it is so so rare that an Uyghur Uzbekio in Australia is working with artisans in Colombia but why is that not normalised? Why is that spot of someone being a business owner can, is only available for someone that appears Western? Why can only a Western person go to Bali or something India, find themselves and do something?
0: Hmm.
2: But why, why is it because it's still so rare for someone of colour to be leader you know like to be a a owner of something because and 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 it's so glamorized like oh my god so when when a caucasian person does it's like so cool that you went to bali and in (laughs) india and you're helping out these poor people it's like that's not how it works that's these countries are not just a place for you to go like glamorize yourself you know um so, so for me, so now I really like own that and and really explain that like, you know, you don't go into and I, and I really explain that and I'm proud of where my stuff are coming from because it's important for us to know and I'm proud of where I'm coming from. But if you are asking me because you're trying to put me in a category, then that's a different like story.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, we, 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 we got so used to a point where it makes sense that things are made in China. Like no one really asks that. When things like you go into Zara, H and M's, like things are made, where they made, but and because people don't have any connections to these countries anymore, because they just think these are like countries where they manufacture things, and majority of these places are using Uyghur forced labour,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? So that really links back to me, and that is why. So it, it's so important for me to preserve all these techniques from around the world, so they are thriving and they are being acknowledged and not being copied and made in China by an oil forced labor.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. I love how you put it that way. So, another question. Yes. <laughs> so, money brings modernization. Have you thought how it would negatively affect the culture and the community you are trying to help?
2: Um, I, I definitely... I actually think um, with what I'm doing with the communities is helping them to bring in an income to be able to keep preserving some of the techniques that they have, right? For example, like I know that, like for example, a lot of them won't have the, won't, won't didn't have the space or like a workshop or like a home to be able to continue on this beading work. Yeah. Um, And or be able to buy the materials or to be able to do that in a sustainable way. And then they were like, you know what, let's go to do another job or like this is not getting appreciated anymore, let's do that. But I really like that so far. There was one artisan that I met while she was actually busking on the streets of Bogota um, right before the pandemic. I just walked up to her and I knew she was from an Indigenous community, started chatting with her. And I knew she was looking at me like, "Why is this Asian girl speaking Spanish to me and talking to me?" <laughs> um, and you know, we work together, and now she she doesn't really have to go busk anymore. She gets to bead from home because there was a point where she was like, "I need to find another way to make money," and so she wasn't be able to to like dedicate time to keep preserving these traditions. Um, so I think that's what's definitely helping for, and I do like that we are bringing money to be able to mix traditional techniques with modern technologies like phones so I can contact them or like so they have a facility, teach them how to post things, set up a bank account. Like it's I think there's something beautiful about all these modern technologies that we have that makes things efficient. Um, But, but, you know, and, and mixing that up with traditional techniques I like that. I like that we're doing that two together, you know. But, but yeah, but right now I feel like sometimes we're getting lost in this middle part of I want this fast thing, I need it quick, I need to buy it for $5 and then wear it for one day and then chuck it out. Like we're getting a little bit lost at the weird stage, but we should utilise the technology and make and preserve the traditions, I reckon
1: yeah amen hey listen my shirt is like 10 years old i'm not gonna ever get, get <laughs> rid of this you know what i mean
2: i love it it's great thank you
1: but it's not yeah. you know it's not artisan i made <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: i've been okay, trying. but you yeah and you're you but you're you're making it last long long lasting you know it's slow fashion that's that's key because
1: well, i'm frugal <laughs> where do they get the beads by the way
2: Um, So so traditionally, the beaded artworks are actually made with different seeds and rocks and pebbles that they find along the Amazon rivers and the jungle. But over time, they actually have went through a stage of modernization. So we still use some seeds like acai seeds or flower seeds that they find in the Amazon rainforest. But the glass beads that we use are produced in the capital city, Bogota. Hmm. or um, they are produced in Czech Republic, believe it or not. (laughs) They produce the best glass seed beads that are used by pretty much all artisans from Nepal in Asia to South America to to Africa. (laughs) That's
1: crazy. Yeah. You're wearing one of the bracelets there.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: I love the pattern. It's beautiful. It reminds me from, you know... Patterns in the Philippines. I guess this is like yep. a basic pattern of tripped, uh, tribal patterns. How long does it take for them to make one uh, bracelet?
2: So I'm wearing a skinny one that would take about three hours to make. That probably has about 400 beads. And the, the wide one, probably about a four to six hour work. And I think that's 500 to 700 beads in that bracelet. Four to six hours. Yeah, Cause you thread the beads one at a time, and how do like how do they plan
1: the pattern? Cause you're like, okay, bead one, bead two, bead three, and then it comes up to this beautiful pattern.
2: Yeah, so you can. Um, some of the artisans will draw it, like draw it out first, and then um, bead from like that. But like some of the older master artisans, they just they just go with it. They just go with the flow. They know the pattern by heart, and it's quite beautiful it's such a meditative and like spiritual practice mm. i learned how to do the beatings with them mm. um, um but i can only make the basic earrings like i like six to seven hour earrings is where i'm at um but none of the big pieces the big necklaces that take weeks of work i'm not that level yeah that's
1: that, that's crazy man for the what do they use as the wire or the, I don't know what you call it?
2: The thread. Yes. Yeah. The so we use the same. We use the same thread that the traditional tribes used to use for fishing. So they're mm. actually super super durable, and um, and they can they're spa sauna swimming pool and Brazilian jiu jitsu safe. I've tried it all out. <laughs> yeah, I went to Brazilian jiu jitsu class just to test out the bracelets and the anklets.
1: I don't think they'll allow you to wear something okay. when you do jujitsu. jitsu
2: Yeah, I, that's what he The teacher was like, take that off. I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. It ain't, and he's like, it's going to break. I was like, it ain't going to break.
1: <laughs> I'm not here for the jiu-jitsu. I'm trying something.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm here for <laughs> testing so, other products. So the material, you
1: said uh, natural, like, is it a like a plant? What is it? So it's like
2: fishing wire.
1: Okay. So it's like,
2: yeah. So that's why they're very... um. They're safe in water and all that.
1: But before, obviously, there was no fishing wire back then. Yeah. What did they use?
2: That's a great question. That's a great question. <laughs> I've only ever, they've only, we've only ever had chats about it always being fishing wire. Hmm. But I'll bring this to the artisans and I'll get back to you. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. You're good. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm just curious, you know, because like yeah. I said, growing up, I see this in the Philippines, like beads and yeah. like that, and I know they always use threads. And of yeah. course, to create this artwork, it came from somewhere. And before mm-hmm. the fishing thread, what do they use?
2: That's you a know? good point. Whenever they told me, yeah, we use fishing thread all our generations, I was like, okay. And I've never asked beyond that. Hmm. But you just blow my mind. <laughs> i'm gonna go back and just sit with this like whoa i'm gonna ask the artisan straight away (laughs) hey
1: man sometimes i come up with this connection of words and make me sound smart
2: yeah no it's great i'm gonna find out it would be cool to know
1: let me know i want to know
2: i will all right
1: all right i think we're there but before we close out one last question
2: Mm
0: mm-hmm
1: What's coming for uh, Denara in five years? What's your plan?
2: Oh, um, oh! I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to learn Portuguese, and I would like to dive into Russian. So, trying to learn those languages. Might actually learn how to fix a light bulb by the in five years' time. Never really fixed one. Um, I think more to do with SETA, definitely a bit of travel is involved. It's been a very long time for Australians to travel, for Melbournians. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's time to go back to visit the artisans in Colombia and also get to Uzbekistan. Mm. You know, it's not that I I don't have any family there, but that's the closest to home that I can get um, to make that reconnection again to the Uzbek side and also connect with the the artisans over there, I definitely have a lot of plans in terms of like business-wise, setter-wise and creation-wise. And even to work with uh, Uyghur refugees in Turkey, that's something in the works to create something with them. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. All right. Any last remark before we close out?
2: No, I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, It's been a pleasure. It's been a fun conversation. I really enjoy this. Thank you so much.
2: No, thank you so much. You made it feel very easy and comfortable to just chat like I'm chatting to a mate. So it's been great.
1: Oh, that's that's a great honor. Thank you so much. Have a good evening or good morning.
2: Thank you. Yes, good morning to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you again, Denara, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you listeners for listening. This is Anne Doliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.